This is Wavemaker Conversations. I'm Michael Shoulder. During these Jewish high holidays, I'd like to share with you from the Wavemaker archives my conversation with Elie Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor, author, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, whom the Nobel Committee called a messenger to mankind. I was thinking of him this week when, in my temple's high holiday prayer book, I came across one of my favorite stories about a 19th century rabbi who, as the story goes, once spent the night at a shoemaker's home. Late at night, he saw the shoemaker working by the light of a flickering candle. Look how late it is, the rabbi said. Your candle is about to go out. Why are you still working? The shoemaker replied, as long as the candle is burning, it is still possible to mend. For weeks afterward, the rabbi was heard repeating the shoemaker's words to himself. As long as the candle is burning, it is still possible to mend. That story captures a central theme of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, one that I think can inspire people of any faith. As long as we have a flicker of life, we can begin or renew the work of improving ourselves, of mending our relationships, of repairing our world. After surviving the Auschwitz and Buchenwald concentration camps, Elie Wiesel devoted his life to repairing the world through his writing and his efforts to prevent future genocides and human suffering. This is Wiesel accepting the Nobel Peace Prize in 1986. The world did know and remained silent. And that is why I swore never to be silent whenever and wherever human beings endure suffering and humiliation. We must speak. We must take sides. For neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. Sometimes we must interfere. When human lives are endangered, when human dignity is in jeopardy, national borders and sensitivities become irrelevant. Wherever men or women are persecuted because of their race, religion, or political views, that place must at that moment, become the center of the universe. Wiesel and I spoke in 2013 for the 20th anniversary of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial and Museum. This was a wide-ranging conversation that included his memories of his childhood village in Hungary, his experience in the Nazi death camps, and his reflections on humor and friendship. I like to think Wavemaker Conversations is where curiosity meets hope. And I believe that this conversation with Elie Wiesel takes us to that place. What's on your horizon these days? What, what are you looking at? What are you noticing? Well, personally, really, still to write a good book. I have written so many books on so many subjects. I'm still waiting to write a good book. Next to it is to read a good book and to have a good class. Look, I'm a teacher after all. I love teaching because I love learning. In my classroom, I'm the best student, a very good learner. Uh, and trying to do something with my life, just like that. Okay. Maybe you saw my latest uh, publication, Open Heart. Tell me about Open Heart. 
the open heart. We always go to Israel for Shavuot, my wife and I, which is the holiday after Passover. And I like it because that is that celebrates the giving of the law. I, I, I'm an admirer of the law and of study and of the Torah. So of course I go there. Came back, and I had in my office uh, political refugees from Iran. Any kind of address for these people. I should help them. They are in danger of death there and so forth. They came to you. To, for yes, help. but I, that's a little bit normal because who else? They will listen to them at least. At least I cannot do much, but they can listen. And uh, all of a sudden, my doctor calls my regular doctor. He you forgot to come for a checkup. Oh my God! So I went for a checkup very early in the morning, around 7:30 or so. Came back to see my Iranian friends. And then my same doctor calls me and said, look, we forgot some tests. You must come right away. I said, I cannot. Because I have here Iranian people. For them, it's a matter of life and death. I cannot abandon them. I just cannot. He said, you must. I said, doctor, I hang up. I cannot. He had it told me, look, something came. No. So we decided to deal at 12 o'clock. He gave me three hours, which was, by the way, a mistake. And the moment I came, they were waiting for me at the gate. Oof, quickly. <laughs> surgery, open heart surgery. I read quadruple bypass. Five bypasses, quintuple bypass. If I do something, I do it well, you know. What is that? Five bypasses. And there, really, I wrote, after two or three days, I began writing, of course, I write everything, whatever happens to me. So I'm a writer after all. So I wrote this little book. And to my great surprise of all my 60 books that I published, this one really immediately became a kind, a kind of bestseller. What, what can we learn from your experience, given your life history, in terms of your approach going into that operation? What were you thinking going in? <sighs> Look, I, in the meantime, my wife was there and my son came there. And I was seized with fear. Will I see them again? Look, I, I lived in fear years and years and years and years ago. I lived in death years and years and years and years ago. So all of a sudden I saw myself again, maybe this is the last hour, but I see them again. You know, I'm so, as somebody who's followed your work and attended your 92nd Street Wife lectures religiously, in fact, I must tell you, my wife and I have been married for 15 years. It was one of the first dates I took her on, <laughs> was to your lecture. Thank it was you. either on Moses or the value of humility in the Bible. The last night I spoke about Prophet Jeremiah, the saddest melancholy prophet in scripture. It's always, I love that because it takes me two months to prepare a lecture of research and writing and thinking. So I, I'm glad you were there, but I like it. I, I wish I had been there last night. I didn't know about it. But I have a question for you because I remember attending several of your lectures. One was on Abraham and Isaac. And I want to talk about that because you call Isaac the first survivor. But there was something else that struck me. You were lecturing on the value of humility that the Bible extols. And you told a wonderful joke to set that up. Do you remember? You don't. No, tell me which one. I, I I'll, t I'll tell you, and you tell me if it's a good one. No. Two religious men are arguing about the value of humility in the Bible. Who is more humble? 
who was more humble. And do you remember, can you please finish the joke? Go ahead. I, okay. I like listening to it. <laughs> One man says to the other, I am the most humble man I know. And his friend says, you, how can you compare your humility to mine? And I remembered that, and I've told it a million times, and I've credited you, but here's what struck me. The joke is when he says, look who is humble. <laughs> <laughs> here's what struck me. I've read Night, which as you describe it in your words, was the race to death and your survival of it. How did your sense of humor survive what you survived? What, what would you do without it? It's not really, my humor is a kind of different humor after all. There is humor before and after. This humor is after. Having seen what I have seen, having endured what so many of us have endured, and with all the questions that face me, and, and with all the possibilities that I question myself, how can I not have humor? Without humor, I think one would fall into a depression that could last their entire lifetime. Only humor can save it, or, or a friend. For me, friendship is a religion. What a friend can do, no one else can. Man or, or, or woman, it's friendship that matters. At one point I wrote somewhere, and I think my wife didn't like that, I said, maybe one can live without love, but not without friendship. So therefore, this humor too. Humor, you, you cannot without humor. You can't live without it, but you can't will it, can you? It comes, but the main thing is humor can be biting. There is a humor which is offensive, and I would never indulge in that. Whatever I do, I would never uh, write. I wouldn't, really, I wouldn't write. If I, if I felt that anything in my writing would offend or pain anyone, I cannot do that. There is enough pain in the world. Why should I add to it? On that issue of humility, because I often think about it, how do you define humility? Because in the face of some of the horrors you've seen, and even some of the lesser horrors we've seen since then, uh, is humility something that one should always have? Or can humility actually impede action? It can. Of course it can impede action. Because, look, I can say, who am I to help you, really? I'm not that arrogant to think that I can help anyone who is suffering, or any poor who needs help, or any sick who needs consolation. Who am I? Don't say that. That comes in a discussion among actually sages. Is there anything good in pride, which is the opposite of humility? Usually it's bad. Men should not be, what are we proud of? We are all mortal. And the answer is, if you are not pride, you won't help anyone. But you would say, who am I to do it? Or if you are too pious, you could say, if God wanted you rich, he would have given you money. If God wanted you in good health, he would have given you good health. Leave me out of it. It comes to the other, the otherness of the other. We must listen to the victim. There's breaking news that we came across from the U.S. Holocaust Memorial just a month ago. And this is, of course, we're speaking to you now, Elie Wiesel, because it's the 20th anniversary of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. You were the, the founder of it, the first chairman. And just last month, we learned that researchers from the memorial had been combing through documents that had existed for years, but nobody had read through them carefully enough to take account and map out the number of ghettos and concentration camps. 
and tell us what they found because it was shocking. Was it shocking to you? Absolutely. At the same time, I was not really that, I was shocked, but not surprised. Tell us the news. Hoyas had discovered some 45,000 uh, ghettos so we didn't even know about. The thing is, there is so much to write about that period. I know if I had spent my entire life doing nothing else, all the books that I have read, no. All the books I have written, no. Just write about that, what I saw and endured and witnessed. It wouldn't be enough. It's too much. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but 45,000 ghettos and concentration camps, some of which were extremely small, scattered throughout the, the land, the Europe, yeah. which has implications for how we assess who knew what and who was complicit, doesn't it? We knew, we knew that we know. Now, in doing research, we know that the world knew. For me, one of the darkest moments in my life was when I came to America, I went to the New York Times Library and to the New York Public Library, saying, what did America know? Incredible, what America knew. America in August 1942, they already knew with certainty that millions of Jews were condemned to death by the Germans and so forth, and nothing was done. The New York Times itself was, I think, hit with the news inside page, something, a small, small item. Uh, I have a friend, his name is Arthur Gelb, he used to be managing editor of the Times, and he then invited me to a luncheon with the New York Times editors of those who were there then and those who are now. And he said to me, look, speak, because we know that you are very angry at all. I was. I, 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 look, I used to be a journalist. I believe in, in communication. I believe in the press. And when I found out that the most respected journal in the world hasn't done enough for has done very little. How can I open a newspaper every morning and say, ah, wait a second, what did they say then? So they decided afterwards that they will do something about it. And therefore, they actually have now a plaque in the New York Times offices saying, when it comes to the tragedy of the Jewish people in Europe, the Times has not fulfilled its mission. I didn't know that. In terms of what we know now, I mean, your personal journey, there are so many millions of individual stories of people who survived and who didn't. And there are some common points and some that are very unique. But rereading Night, last night, your memoir of your experience in the Holocaust, I didn't, ha I didn't realize that you were in a selection process in one of the camps that was supervised by Mangala, yeah. Dr. Oh, Joseph Mangala. Please tell our listeners and viewers what that was like. My friend, remember, at that time, we Hungarian Jews were criminally neglected by the free world. May 1944, literally days before D-Day, then Washington knew, London knew, Switzerland knew, the Vatican knew about Auschwitz men. We Jews in Hungary didn't hear about it. Had we heard about it, my town in Transylvania, which is in the Carpathian Mountains, is surrounded by mountains. We could have escaped into the mountains and, and, and hide. We had a Christian woman 
in litter, Maria. She was our, our, our friend and servant for years and years. She came into the ghetto and she pleaded with my father, Mr. Bizel, she says, I have a hut in the mountain. Come, I'll take care of you. The Russians were 30 miles away. If we had known, how come that nobody told us? Who was 30 miles away? The Russian army, the Red Army. How come? If occasionally I'm seized by anger, that is my anger about that. So what did we know? Nothing. So therefore, when we arrived there, my father, we arrived in Auschwitz. He looked through the window, he said, scale Auschwitz. The name meant nothing to us. We were there and we had no idea. And this doctor? Then we came to there and we stood in line. And uh, of course, this immediately separated us from my, my mother and, and my sisters. And I remained with my father. And everything was so fast and so well organized. Everybody knew what to do in order to lure the victims. Everyone, everything worked. The machinery worked. And then all of a sudden we came, and then a, an, an old prisoner came to the, to the line saying, they will ask you questions. To me, he said, how old are you? I said, 15. Say 18. To my father, how old are you? He said, 48 or something. No, say 30. Because he knew what we didn't know, that those who could work will live. Those who couldn't will die. And as he was staying, and then something strange happened to me. I come from a very religious background, very religious. When I saw these hundreds and hundreds and thousands perhaps of Jews coming from all over Europe, speaking all languages, belonging to all cultures, to all conditions, Men, women, children, young and old, learned and ignorant, all are there. I had the feeling this is a messianic event. The ingathering of the, the final, ultimate ingathering of exiles. The Messiah is coming. I swear to you, that's what I felt. And who came was not the Messiah, but death as Messiah. You mentioned if we had known back in, how do you pronounce your town, Siget? Siget, yeah. Siget. One man knew, and I read it One, in your book. Yes. His name Moshe, was? Moshe, Moshe, yeah. One man knew. Moshe the Beetle? Be the Beetle, yeah. The Beetle. Yeah. Why do they call him Mo Moshe the He was the a beetle. beetle in the synagogue. What's a Beetle? The Beetle is the, the ultimate servant of the synagogue, the lowest servant of the synagogue. He, he was one of the poorest men in town. Poorest and insignificant. And he was taken by a first transport. In 1941 or so, the, the Hungarians trans, uh, expelled uh, foreign Jews, quote-unquote, those who couldn't prove the nationality. Then, then we heard that they were taken to somewhere in Poland, now I know all the details, were shot right afterwards, a few weeks later, and he was one of them. Because he couldn't prove his nationality and came back. When he came back, he began talking, nobody listened to him. And what did he say? Terrible things. Jews, you don't know what's happening there. Jews are being killed. He said, some people have to dig their own grave. And I was there and everybody died. He gave names, this one died, that one died. And I alone, like the story of Job, and I alone came to tell the tale. Nobody listened to him. They thought he was crazy. The only one who listened was I. Not because I believed him, because I love stories. 
And then he remained in town, not the same person anymore I used to see him before. And then I saw him in the ghetto with the last transport. He knew where we were going, but we didn't. This Moisha fascinates me because you were, me we, were we were talking about your your religious fervor and your passion for it. And I, I read that you, you really wanted to study Jewish, Jewish mysticism okay. and your father didn't want you to, but you found Moisha who taught you about this. And was it, was it Moisha or your grandfather who told you that the power of a question can almost overpower the answer? That's him. That's that was what Moisha. Moshe said it, of he course. He taught you that. But it came, many people said that, but to me at that time, he is the one who said it. But at the same time, really, the real teacher was not he. I had, my, I had Kalman, the Kabbalist. He was my teacher in Siget. But he taught me something more important, the destiny of the Jewish people, the mass graves. You know, coincidentally, my son, who's going to be bar mitzvah next year, and in sixth grade, they have a project. Each child in sixth grade is randomly assigned a child who perished in the Holocaust. And you're only given two details, the name and the place where they died. And he researched it. And because of the miracle of technology, he and I together, we looked and we looked and we found this boy who was 12 years old when he perished in 1943. And I had never heard of the place. And yet 500,000 Jews had been killed there. And you know where it was? Last night I was reading night, it was the same forest that Moshe had come back from. Really, from Galicia? Yes. And that Kamenes, was... Podolsk. Yes. Why had I, who have read about the Holocaust, 500,000 people had been killed there, and I, I wasn't aware of that name. Why is that? That's why you asked earlier about writing, you know, and how many transports were, ex how many villages or cities were eliminated without a single survivor, which means taking history with them in the grave. That reminds me of the story you told 20 years ago at the 92nd Street Y of Samson, who, who, would who lived when, when tell, the stadium collapsed. Came down, sure, to tell the How story. Would, yes. To bear I, witness. I can't Nobody. remember. Nobody. So how did the story come to us? Oh, because of divine inspiration. You have been worried, you had written about, you were worried when you first wrote about your experiences that your testimony would not be accepted. Do you still worry about that? Or do you accept that it has been accepted? It has been accepted by most people, but there are what we call Holocaust deniers. And they are the ugliest human beings that exist. I would never engage them in a debate, they try. But I would never do that because they are so ugly. To deny the Holocaust today while they are still survivors. Uh, what should a survivor think? Let's say in Chicago, Illinois, when they had marches, the Holocaust deniers had marches with planes saying there was no Holocaust. Imagine a survivor in Skokie, Illinois, at the window with his children, and they say there was no Auschwitz, and the children surely looked at their father, hey, hey, they say you weren't there. So therefore, at one point, I, I gathered deans of law school say, what can we do about it? How about suing them simply for the pain they are causing to our children?
And they said, all the most famous lawyers, don't touch it because you may lose on a technicality. And that would give them a reason to rejoice and say, look, even the courts are with us. But at the same time, you know, I was a few, few years ago in San Francisco at a peace conference, peace, conflict resolution and peace. And all of a sudden, as I took the elevator to my 26th floor, I was alone with a young man, and on the sixth floor he stopped, and he tried to kidnap me. I remember the story. Remember the story? Tried to kidnap me. Literally, he said, you must come with me, and I'll force you to tell me certain things, to, to admit that the Holocaust never existed. I got panicked. So luckily I began shouting, and nobody listened. But then he saw the elevator, we saw that somewhere the elevator was coming, and he saw that it came for me. So he ran away. After two weeks, he was, uh, of one week, he was caught by the police. He spent two years in, in, in prison. Why should a young man who just finished college destroy his career? Just for that? But they too, they are dangerous. So you still, even after what you've been through, you still get shocked. I get shocked for, for the extreme when it comes to that. Sure, sure. In terms of your perspective on the world now, I mean, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum set out with some very ambitious goals 20 years ago. Tell me what the main mission was, have they achieved it, and what's necessary for them to succeed? What is the metric to evaluate their success for the next 20 years? It was one of the projects that really I'm so pleased that I, I was part of, really. Because not only it's a successful story, it's not only that, because of the meaning of success. I never, never realized it. Can you imagine, I think, close to 20 million visitors to the museum in 20 years. And tell us the percentage of Jews versus non-Jews. I think more non-Jews than Jews, of course. I've read 90% non-Jews. Yes, but not only that. You have the FBI and the military and the police. Everybody goes there now. You cannot now imagine American history without, without that museum. And therefore, I'm so proud of our country. And it was President Carter who came to you with the idea of doing something, a monument, and you had a different idea. That's right. He wanted a monument, you know. And I said, Mr. President, at the end I said to Mr. President, I am a Jew, we don't believe in monuments. And what do you believe in? I said, in books, in archives, in, 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 in teaching, in learning. And finally he accepted to have actually to, to build a, a museum with, with educational components. And, and it, it became one of the best, best projects in American history. Which, as we discussed in the beginning, is still breaking news on this story. I, I have a question to ask you. It's really for my daughter. When she was nine years old, and she was in art class, and they spread newspaper over the table, as they do in art classes, and the teacher hadn't noticed a particularly horrific story in the corner of one of those newspapers, but she did. It's about a very violent incident, which shocked her for days. And then she came to me with a question that I'd like you to try to answer for her. She said, Dad, if the world were a movie, what would it be rated? Oh, probably R. The history of the 20th century is not a nice history, not a good century. Oh, there were good things too, let's, let's be 
honest about it and trying several great things. First of all, in the world of sciences. The, the medical science has made progress in, in, in 50 years, more than in 5,000 years. They have made progress. Also um, in writing and in, in the law, the law improved. The law against racism in America, which is after, it took time. Why? The fact is, when I came to America and I visited the South, I was shocked because I saw racism, not only the law, but at work. And then for the first time in my life, I was ashamed being white. I was never ashamed of being Jewish, not even during the war, but being white. Now it's against the law. The law forbids racism. So there are good things that happen too, but above all, it's not enough. We expected more. I would like, for instance, in the field of morality, to make as much progress as we made in the sciences, as we made in, in, in medicine. But you know, I'm so encouraged to hear you say, given what you've been through, that the world is only rated R. That encourages me. <laughs> I have to ask you, because I'm looking at you, and I didn't know what to expect. You're 84 years old. You hurt my hand when you shook it. You have. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's because I walked on crutches for a whole year. Is that right? Yeah. You have a determination in your eyes. Your face looks great. What is your secret to longevity? Believe me, I don't know. I have no idea. Look, we are all frail. We are all mortal. All of a sudden, I think, you know, two years ago, all of a sudden, I uh, had a heart attack. And I told you five bypasses and so forth and so forth. I don't know. Believe me, I don't do the right thing. I work too hard. <laughs> Maybe and, that's part of it, though. It's the working hard. I've been told by your staff that you walk everywhere. They did a study in Hokkaido, Japan, where there are more centenarians than any place on Earth, and they found good diet, so maybe you don't have that, constant motion, and purpose in life. Well, purpose in life, of course, in my case, is important, naturally, sure, but I, I want to do something with my, the years that I have, that I had. Uh, otherwise, it'd be why go on. When you describe, and maybe you can tell me, my son is being bar mitzvahed next year. When is it appropriate? When can he read night? My new friend, listen to me. There is no answer to that because that's for him to decide. Some. How can he decide if he doesn't? He know feels it himself. Saying? He will feel it. He lives in an atmosphere. He will come to you. You cannot impose that on him. I know. I had cases, for instance, where parents came and and their children began at seven or eight even seven and eight. Twelve is surely a good age. But if, if the son or the daughter feel they are not yet ready, don't force. The main thing is not to force them. The, the description of your father and how close he came to surviving all the way was what, six weeks before the liberation? Two months. Yeah. And I thought, and there was nothing you could do, and I know that, but I don't know if you want to describe that experience, or if we should just refer people to the book because it's around one, page 100, it's near the end. But again, to have to, for anybody to have to go through that is, is beyond my imagination. And I almost felt like I couldn't subject my son to that scene, and yet he should know that this has existed. Look, I wanted to leave when I was in Auschwitz because of my father. I knew that if I die, he would die. But then we went to Buchenwald together. 
when he died, I didn't live anymore. That's why the book, which is so small, the last, since January 27 to April 11, maybe three, four pages, nothing. Because nothing happened to me, I wasn't alive. But you came back to life. I came back on April 11. And all of a sudden, the American army was there in Buchenwald, the first American soldier. To this day, you know, I'm so grateful to the American army, you cannot imagine. And there is a photo. You've seen the photo of you. It was a few days after April. Probably, yeah. yeah. When the American army came. It was an American officer who found it. I'm going to, you know what? I have it on my computer. An American officer. And I, I, I want to bring it up, and I'm going to type in my password because I have a question to ask you about that, because you described how you felt when you looked in the mirror. Just, uh, here it is. Uh, because I, I couldn't recognize where you were. Yeah. And if, if, you can, if you can point it out, yeah. that is you. Yeah. Which is, you know, we can expand it. A little bit. No, up, but, up, up, yeah, up. Yeah. On, this uh, one. Really, I look at, I don't recognize you, and you didn't recognize How you? yourself. How could you? And you know what? I was out in your receiving room out here, and I saw all your books, and on one of the bindings was a picture of Adolf Hitler. And I think, what's a more frightening image to you, that picture or this picture of you? Of course, his, actually. Hitler's. Because you were terrified when you saw your face and your body. I haven't seen, we didn't have mirrors before. First time I saw a mirror was afterwards. When, uh, but well, again, the American army, the American army for me became, uh, I was invited one day to, uh, to West Point to give a lecture. I accepted for one reason, immediately, to say thank you. And I took my wife with me, because I knew it was going to be very moving. And I said to them, look, all my life, my adult life, I wanted actually to thank the American army could they give me a parade? You know, they said, they are giving you something that only the President of the United States can get. They gave me such honors. I said, you are thanking me. I came to thank you. This is one of the most glorious moments of American military history. <sighs> Having said that, afterwards, when I began reading history books, the Americans knew about all these camps before. And I was wondering whether the American Patton's Third Army. I'm sure they knew that what was awaiting them in Buchenwald. Did the commanders make a decision or an effort to go a little bit faster? They would have saved more people. When I look at that picture, I also think, because you were so hopeless at that point, you at 84 now, if you could say something to that 16-year-old Elie Wiesel, what would it be? Look, I had that feeling and that need to say to that boy, strangely enough, at the most one of the most glorious moments in my life when I got the Nobel Prize. And I remember I was there and I had to speak. And actually I wanted to speak to that boy and say, look, here I am with you. What have I done with your life and mine? My questions remain questions all the time. Elie Wiesel, thank you so much for joining us. I thank you very much. Thank you.